1: following program is presented by the nerdy show podcast network geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse all nerdy show programming is made possible by a comic shop orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination and with the generous support of listeners like you to learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming visit nerdyshow.com
2: this is chris carter and you're listening to the nerdy show
1: Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. And this episode is a very special exploration of one of the coolest cult TV shows of all time, Millennium. With me, as a special co-host for this episode, are the guys behind the Back to Frank Black Project, the premier Millennium fan group, James McLean and Troy Foreman. Hello and thanks for having us. Thanks for being here, guys. Millennium for the uninitiated, Um, perhaps it sounds familiar to you. If it does, it's because it's effectively the sister show to the X-Files. The series started in 1996 and was based on some of the less paranormal episodes that they had, like uh, Irresistible and Paper Hearts, which many people list as some of the best episodes of the entire series. So Millennium comes from that stock with uh, series creator Chris Carter coming in and imagining A scenario where, instead of doing uh, Monsters of the Week, it was kind of uh, Serial Killers of the Week, and looked into the anxiety, paranoia, and underlying darkness of America on the verge of the 21st century. The series stars Lance Henriksen as criminal profiler Frank Black, a man who sees visions from the perspective of killers, and can sense evil. He used to work for the FBI, and at the start of the first season, now offers his expertise through the mysterious Millennium Group. Millennium ran for three seasons and ended in 1999, but uh, why are we talking about it right now other than the three of us like it a whole bunch? Well, that's because Millennium has returned. Two years ago, in late 2013, we talked to Chris Carter, creator of X-Files, and IDW's Joe Harris, writer of X-Files Season 10, and editor Denton J. Tipton, about the X-Files Season 10 comic. We touched on Millennium a little bit there, but uh, it turns out that uh, behind the scenes, some gears were turning, and now Millennium is back, just like The X Files, continued in comic book form, written by Joe Harris. We're going to be speaking with him later this episode. And through the course of this episode, we hope to give you some insights into this phenomenal piece of extremely influential television that is, in this day and age, still extremely relevant, and also, of course, exploring the new comic as well as talking with these guys about the incredible work that they've done building a fan community for a cult TV series. You are the hosts of the Millennium Group Sessions, the uh, podcast at the Back to Frank Black Project, and you guys have talked to pretty much all the movers and shakers, actors, producers, directors of the entire series.
3: Yeah. I was running my own podcast at the time, and uh, I wanted to do something about Millennium, So uh, I started doing some research about the show, and I came across this Back to Frank Black campaign. So I reached out to uh, James and invited him to come on my podcast to talk about Millennium. After we finished, we ended up talking for like another hour or so, talking about the show and how much we loved it. And we realized that we had this really good rapport with each other. So maybe like a month or two later, James asked me if I wanted to come along with the Back to Frank Black campaign and start a podcast. And that's how Millennium Group Session started.
1: So Millennium. Millennium. I didn't watch it when it was on TV. <laughs> I only just finished it, really, a few months ago. When we recorded our X-Files episode, I was in the process of rewatching all of X-Files and every associated series, which included Millennium and Lone Gunman, neither of which I'd actually seen. Millennium took me by storm. I've been completely wowed by the series, but you guys, obviously have invested a part of your lives into bringing the series back. <laughs> what drew you to millennium?
4: Yeah, I've spent nearly a quarter of my life trying to bring millennium back. Um, yeah. It's been about eight years. Like you, I um, came late. I saw a few episodes in the nineties, bought a couple on video and then bought the DVD set and a uh, spellbinding in it. When X-Files two was coming out around the same time, Frank Spotnitz had sort of mentioned that Frank black may return Lance Henriksen had said the same. Chris Carter had said he'd be interested. So the campaign was a way of supporting those lead figures in Millennium in trying to bring it back. So we started off back to Frank Black. Uh, I got stuck on alcohol and sniffing toilet cleaner, and then I woke up one day and found (laughs) Troy Foreman was on board. I don't know who the hell the guy was. Troy's been very good at sort of coordinating with cast and crew. It's been a tough, interesting road.
3: Yeah, I mean, unlike you guys, I watched the show from the very beginning. And I I remember the night I sat down and watched the pilot. And after it was over, I just sat there for like five minutes and didn't move or say anything because I was just blown away by what I saw. (laughs) Um, Seriously, I was a big fan of Lance Henriksen already. And this thing with serial killers and how their minds work and how they tick and what makes them do what they do, I found that, this may sound creepy, kind of fascinating, and I was really interested in learning more about that. And watching this show, it just blew my mind. So that's how I got into
4: it. It's weird because before the campaign, I went down to Manchester about a year before, I think. And I met Lance there very, very briefly as he was signing. And that was really exciting because I'd just finished Millennium and the chance to meet Lance Henriksen was great. I had no idea at that time that, you know, a few years later, he'd be on um, discussion panels with us, ringing us up with uh, various foul (laughs) mouth, lewd comments when he's bored. And it's just such a weird development.
1: You guys' campaign has actually worked hand-in-hand with Lance Henderson. That's, in a lot of ways, I I don't really have a comparison for that in any other fan institution where the face of a show has become a part of the movement to resurrect the show. I'm sure there must be some other examples, but I don't know them.
4: I suppose Firefly had something similar, that the cast were very receptive to helping fans. But I don't think there's anything so hands-on as Lance has been.
3: I don't want to toot our own horn, but uh, I think we're the only one that's had, I mean, Lance has said from day one when we first approached him about this campaign, he said, whenever you guys need me and I'm available, I'm there. I'll help you with that where I can. Anyone we've ever talked to on the podcast has basically said, if we're free and there's something you need from us, whether it be on the podcast, help with a charity event you're doing or whatever, just give us a call and we'll be there.
4: We've got on the front of our site, a trailer done by a fan that Mark Snow himself scored. With new that's music. That's a Millennium yeah. trailer. With new music. Brand yeah. new music. Yeah, you know, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> it's it is. crazy. It's mad.
3: We were trying to think of a contest to do, and we came up with this, create what you think a Millennium movie trailer would be like. And I was talking to James. I'm like, you know what would be cool? If we could get Mark Snow to create new music for the trailer. And we both just kind of laughed because we didn't think it would ever happen. So we reached out to him. And like within a day, he got back and said, yep, whenever you get the clip, just send it to me and I'll do it.
4: That's so fucking Yeah, I remember Troy saying that. I just said, who the hell are you? (laughs) My toilet cleaner. But he obviously remembers it
1: differently. And you guys actually have the intro to your podcast is this Mm. PSA from Lance Henderson. Yes.
3: We got together and wrote a little ditty for Lance and we called him up and he said, sure. Are you recording? And boom, he did it in one take.
0: After a decade, the time is now. The wave is becoming tidal. Join us in the campaign for the return of FBI criminal profiler, Frank Black, and Millennium. This is the Back to Frank Black Millennium Group Sessions. My friends, this is who we are.
1: If you're a fan of X-Files, then Millennium was similar but decidedly very different. Whereas X-Files looked to the beyond, a lot of Millennium looks within, whether that within is the twisted mind of a serial killer or the battleground for angels and demons. Though the show is very much separate from X-Files and has some sort of continuity hiccups if you really want to make them sync together, it actually does take place in the same universe. And in the X-Files comic, as well as a single episode of the X-Files, you see Mulder Scully and Frank Black... Interacting together.
3: Yeah. I mean, if you're into dark shows like that, like stuff like Dexter that are on Criminal Minds, shows like that, they have little trickles of Millennium throughout them, and you can definitely see Millennium's influence on shows like that.
4: One of the obvious inspirations, Seven, the movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. probably a very good uh starting point. Yeah, the show was actually pitched as Seven in Seattle.
1: That's
3: pretty much what it is, yeah.
4: But it's not as abrasive in its cut and framing of the show, is it? It's got that specs, files, flow. Yeah. It can't
1: be overstated how much all of the thriller and crime genres of today owe to a lot of the style and intensity that um, Millennium brought to television. It was truly before its time. Honestly, I mean, when it started, I was in my teens and I don't think even if I did see an episode that there was a chance that I would have walked away from it wanting to see more I think that I can appreciate it more as an adult than I had ever a chance of at the time and I think maybe that's one of the reasons that there wasn't so much carryover between that and X-Files because if people were looking for the pulpy kind of feel that X-Files sometimes had there was none of it in Millennium it was all the darkest blackest stuff that had ever happened on television and still to this day kind of is
3: you're right. I think that's one of the things that was its eventual downfall is that the show was so dark that a lot of people just couldn't deal with that on a weekly basis. And you had people like myself and James, who were the uh, exceptions to the case and all the Millennium fans, obviously, that liked that kind of television. Yeah, But it was just too dark to be mainstream, put it that way, as X-Files was. Although well, X-Files did have its dark episodes, it had, it had its comedy as well.
4: Millennium sits closer to horror yeah. on both urban horror and mythological horror. The X-Files, and horror has always struggled, you know, proper horror, not sort of Buffy the Vampire, Supernatural, sort of, you know, decent horror has always been a struggle to get a mainstream audience on television. I think it still has a problem, not as bad as it did then.
3: If you look at Hannibal right now, which Hannibal's a dark show, but it's been struggling in the ratings. It's just as dark as Millennium, if not more dark, it's been struggling in the ratings, and I think James is right.
1: I suppose the good news is that there's a greater chance of Hannibal continuing than there was of millennium i mean it was a miracle millennium survived three seasons in fact most everyone didn't think it was going to have a third season millennium had a, a lot of different flavors across the course of the show it went from very real horror in the form of serial killers and some very very unnerving scenarios to paranormal horror in the form of angels and demons which was so intriguing with the way that the series started with those apocalyptic overtones, but very subtle and quickly shifted into serial killer of the week format so that when ultimately the apocalyptic and paranormal elements crept back in, they had a lot more impact because you could kind of ride along with Frank thinking like the darkness that I'm fighting here as a criminal profiler is the darkness of man. And then realize that no, some things are well beyond that and that might actually be what I'm tapping into. But the paranormal elements of it weirdly enough, are kind of at odds with Chris Carter's initial vision for the show. And there's the debate of whether or not Frank's powers are psychic or not. And I think at this point, based on the continuity over the course of three seasons, it's kind of undeniable that it is a special ability rather than the flashes are his intuition as a criminal profiler.
4: The way I reconcile it in my mind is is that he is a criminal profiler who has a gift that lets him perceive beyond what other criminal profilers do. But the process of using that gift is the same as a criminal profiler. He just sees it in a more visceral way. You know, initially it kicks off. You do get the feeling it's just meant to be a a mode of understanding how criminal profilers see crime scenes. And yet at the same time, you can't deny that his daughter's got some talent, some gift. No one has ever really told us or said they really understood from the writers and uh, directors and creators when it started to evolve but I sort of got the feeling that as the series progressed the need to sort of tap a little more into the mythological aspects probably meant that they went down a road that perhaps initially at pilot stage they weren't planning to do.
1: I agree. One of the interesting things about season one and how it's funny that people like to point at season two and be like look season two is extremely different I mean and it was stylistically I love it it had so much going on and expanded the universe in so many incredible ways. But season one really laid the groundwork for that. I mean, the episode powers, principalities, thrones, and dominions, you actually see an angel and a demon confront each other. And it's the only time that happens in the entire show. Yes,
4: it's a great moment that. You it's can't a great really episode. I should write a paper on it, to be honest. There is a sort of continuity of evil in season one that to me connects from Gehenna, which is the second episode, straight through to powers. And you can see to me, it looks pre-planned. When we've spoken to the people involved, they say, no, it wasn't. But Gehenna, he talks about there being uh, two sets of evil, a human evil and an evil beyond that controls human evil or plays with human evil. The judge suggests that he is legion, that he is not human, that he is something evil, and says he'll meet Frank again after he's given him uh, an offer to join his side, per se. And then he disappears. And that offer is then reflected again in Power, Principle, Thrones and Dominions where Pepper says exactly the same thing. I said, I'd be back, and here I am. And even before then, in Sacrament?
1: Yeah, that's the one where Jordan's powers are first displayed.
4: Yeah, You have that, and you have uh, the grandfather on the top of the stairs. You get that shot of the stairs, which is again reflected in Lamentation with Lucy Butler and the demon. And there's almost a suggestion there that Frank is pushing against evil at that point. And so he pays a price. So you do see a very running logic through there, this sort of power play of a higher evil that manipulates lower evil and is um, interested in Frank and is a fascinating chronology, whether it was intentional or not.
3: Yeah, but that's all coincidental, by
4: the way. Apparently. (laughs) Apparently. I don't see how, (laughs) because they reference each other.
1: (laughs) I I guess they have a really good story editor. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Yeah.
3: It's fascinating just to listen to James talk about that again, man. The show is so deep. Like the first time through, I watched it, I thought it was great. I didn't really get a lot of it. And then when I started watching it again, started talking with James and other people, I just realized how deep and amazing this show is. So it's fascinating to hear this again.
4: This is a line in Sacrament where they actually say, you know, why does this keep happening to you, Frank? And the sort of suggestion again is, is that evil is interested in what he's doing. And so it starts to become personal. It starts putting a personal pressure on him and his family. That narrative of Frank accidentally finding
1: himself at uh, the threshold of a war between demons and the souls of men, that narrative, which is scattered across the show and done in such a way so that every time those elements of the plot bubble up again, they feel extremely potent and extremely ominous. Of all the various, very effective things about Millennium, that's the thing that drew me into the show the most. There's a sense of gravity there. That's well beyond the threat of alien colonization from X-Files, the threat of evil encroaching in the souls of man. Imagine that war being waged simultaneous to the war happening in the X-Files, and like which one's actually scarier. It's the Millennium One, the silent one. (laughs) Yeah, I agree 100%. So right now we're going to cut to a track, and it's something brand new from Nerdcore Supergroup RPG Unit. This track is a dark ballad to the legacy of Bioshock. It features vocals by Starby and King Phoenix, was produced by DJ Roborob, and it's called Biorhythm. When we get back, we're going to be talking with Joe Harris, writer of X-Files Season 10, and the new Millennium miniseries.
2: series. Sister, you're about to get your face smashed. Don't have time for questions, so do you, better think fast. See you with the blast in the back with my fireball. Turn around, and disappear, I'm climbing up the wall. Big sister's here, cause you he made a bad decision. I need all the little sisters to complete my mission. Gotta keep that out flowing, flowing. even it means capture. Say hello to the new protector, yo, I'm bringing back Rapture. Eight years later, and more than a few mutations, I'm adapted to the atom, I'm the perfect creation, I got strength. of the big daddy skills of a spicer drain. And I'm like a sister, but well, like you're still a diver. Go and try to fight back, hit me with your weak attacks. Throwing objects with my mind, bitch, try and dodge that. Drop, charm stab, your HP is getting lower like the you heard my screen This battle was all
5: over Wicked, handle business in this iron prison Control minds, bio, 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 rhythm Ryan did them, styles, they'll be dying with them Control spines, bio, 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 rhythm Hell's a choice, your fate, my decision Control time, bio, 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 rhythm Tired of living, slice, slice, and try again It's control hives, bio, 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 rhythm Original coke, classic, grab the baddest habit Smashing plasmids, Eve, don't even have to grab it Sister, a savage, diver, I'm so deep Clean up, the souls, leak Murray. Out of old shit, go clean Bitches know the drill, Bit Killed it, concealed it, visions thrilled it Tilted, turn up the feeling. The nightmare where you don't wait Bust your DNA, strain till your soul shake, shaking, not stirred, a waste in the world Betrayed age, rusty veins, sustained curls Pyro swirls, tonight we watch it all blaze Father's Day, rapture, rapture, doors all maze. Immovable, unstoppable, the last hit Melt your corpses, scrap, your cashed in Money is action, the soul is with gold Bringing all these sisters, still little and grown In this, in this, I am prison, control minds, bio, 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 rhythm, Ryan did em. styles, they'll be dying with them, control spines, bio, 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 rhythm, hell's a choice, your fate, my decision, control time, bio, 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 rhythm, tired of living, slice, slice, and try again, it's control lives, bio, 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 rhythm.
1: With us on the line is Joe Harris. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the show, Joe. It's a pleasure to be back. Man, when last we talked, the first volume of X-Files Season 10 had been collected. At that point, was there any kind of sense that in addition to resurrecting X-Files, you might also be resurrecting Millennium?
2: We had not yet broached the subject of Millennium, but it was coming right around the corner. It was around this time last year that IDW first mentioned that it was a possibility. Because X-File Season 10 had launched so strongly and because it had been so well received, Fox was interested in potentially doing Millennium, and they wanted to see if there was some way we could build off that success. And when uh, Chris Ryle, the editor-in-chief at IDW, broached the subject to me, I was really excited by it.
1: It sounds like you were a previous fan of Millennium at that time, then.
2: I was probably not as big a fan as I was of The X-Files, but it was definitely something that intrigued me. It was something that I don't think the first time around the bend, I loved it as much as I do now. And I think for reasons that are probably obvious to a lot of people, it's not really a casual experience, Millennium. <laughs> nope. you, know? it, you have to really invest yourself. And it's a very deliberate thing. That probably speaks to why it is much more of a cult classic without the same sort of pop culture impact that the X-Files enjoys.
1: But you actually ushered in the possibility for this Millennium series in a two-part story arc late Mm -hmm. last year in X-Files called Immaculate. It was an interesting way to introduce Frank because you have this two-part story that felt very Millennium-like in the first part but didn't feature any clear Mm -hmm. evidence to Millennium and then... Part two, boom, Frank Black was there in the first few pages. (laughs) What was your thought process going into uh, creating this initial dip in the water for Millennium within the scope of X Files?
2: Well, I mean, the mission was obviously to expose the audience to the idea that we could bring Frank Black in first and foremost, because it is a shared universe, even though they really only shared that one episode in the X Files. And then really, we tried to orchestrate a surprise, which is so hard to do in comics, you know? I mean, you've got previews come out the solicitations come out three months ahead of time and what we tried to orchestrate is frank would show up in what was it issue 17 that he showed up in right frank would show up and then we would announce it at new york comic-con like right after that that there was going to be a millennium series and i don't know if the orchestration ended up as perfectly crisp as we had initially planned but you know we came close to what our initial plan was and i think we did orchestrate a surprise based on what you're talking about and that's just really hard to do You know, I remember a time when I was a kid, comic books were full of surprises. I didn't know what was going to happen until I went to the store and bought them. And then suddenly previews was the thing we bought every month. And then suddenly there was the three month solicitation cycle informing us and it became much harder to pull off surprises. So that we came anywhere close to doing that here is something I think we're all a little proud of. <laughs> and in fact, I met Troy at yeah. Awesome Con last year, and he had come up and introduced himself. And that was when we finally finalized that this was happening. And then Troy came up and introduced himself <laughs> told me, and told me about what he did involved so far as keeping, you know, the idea of Frank Black and Millennium alive. And I had to really tiptoe around things because I didn't want to ruin anything, you know, and it had just sort of come up. So suddenly people were asking me about it, and I didn't realize how fervent the people who love Millennium love Millennium how devoted that core audience really is and I I began to get a little bit of an appreciation honestly from both of you guys not exclusively from both of you guys but those are good illustrative points of of, Mm -hmm. I think what's out there and um so it started to come together and I you know tried my best to keep it quiet and
1: (laughs) here we are (laughs) exactly So far, so good. In the process of bringing Millennium back, you know, Mm -hmm. X-Files Season 10, you worked really closely with Chris Carter to create a continuity that wouldn't conflict with any plans that he hopes to achieve someday with future X-Files material. So that Season 10 could be canonical and could work in tandem with anything that would happen in another medium. Part of the Back to Frank Black project was stirred by Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz being open to the idea of continuing Millennium in some capacity. What, if any, influence has Chris Carter had over the course you decided to take with the Millennium presence in comics?
2: He's been reviewing everything. We have not worked that closely on this series the way we did when we were launching X-Files Season 10. He was very much involved with shooting the after when we were putting all of this together. So this isn't serving some greater agenda for him, although I have heard him speak, same as you guys have, that he would love to potentially revisit the character and the property. So. I would like to think we're just gonna keep the home fires burning. Good. They're his toys, you know, I'm trying to do the most fan service I can do without it being pure fan service. (laughs) I want it to feel consequential and to feel like these are strong stories in both series, you know, in their own right. But obviously we're doing some fan service. We're trying to give everyone that old timey feeling when they come back and read this stuff so that it does feel authentic and it does speak to everyone's experience that brought them in in the first place. I would hope we're not stepping on any potentiality in other media. I don't think we are.
1: Now might be a good time to bring up that uh, currently the internet is aflame with uh, it is. cryptic messages from Fox executives about being interested in reinstating X Files at some capacity.
2: You don't say. I haven't heard. No one said that to me really? all in the last
1: couple of days. Right. I haven't heard that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should see my Facebook inbox. You should...
1: <laughs> X Files Season 10 has been incredible. And I sincerely hope that there's not ever a point at which it becomes swept under the rug as a continuation of the series because I honestly feel about it as strongly as I feel about the series itself. Some people like to create distinctions, but I'm a pretty firm believer in that uh, comic books are one of the most creative and diverse mediums out there and that they should be offered equal respect. So I, you know, I'll, I'll treat the Big Trouble in Little China comic and the continuations of Buffy with the same reverence that I would a season or a film and so on. And X-Files is right there along with those. That's that a
2: beautiful sentiment. Thank you. Yeah,
1: I mean it. 100%. I believe you.
2: I'll carve it on my chest <laughs> with a knife. <laughs> I don't doubt you at
1: all. I, I won't do that. Don't, don't mutilate yourself. But, but I, do, I, I do mean it. I, I believe you. <laughs> I believe in what you're doing here. I think it's good stuff and goddamn it. Everyone should read it.
2: Thank you so much. We'll see, right? I mean, all we've ever tried to do is is do our best to stand as close to alongside the mothership, no pun intended, being the <laughs> X-Files, you know, that we could, I mean, we try to get the voices of the characters down. We try to get the feel of the, the show down, something that's carried over into Millennium to the best of my and my collaborators' ability. You know, we'll see, right? I mean, I can't tell you what's going to happen next. I honestly know nothing about the future of the X-Files show just to answer the nine million emails and tweets that I've gotten. I don't really know. I, I, I'm not being coy about that. I don't know anything about what's going on. I'm as surprised and curious as everybody else. In the interim, we're going to keep on keeping on and we'll see how it all ties together in the future. I'm as curious as to how this will all work out, if it's all to work out in one way or another as you guys are.
3: I think it's a testament to you, Joe, and, and the guys working on the um, season 10 of X-Files that Fox is now starting to seriously look at doing a revival of the X-Files. And I'm hoping yeah, that this Millennium comic comes out and they see that there's a buzz for that show as well, that they may look at, hey, give them a TV movie or something just to close out the Millennium story. So I think it's a testament to you and, and everyone that worked on the comics in season 10 that Fox is looking at doing a revival of X-Files right now. So kudos to you guys.
2: Well, thank you. You know, how far up the ladder at the the studio it goes, I I have no idea. I know that the people who are privy to, the people who, you know, on the business end of things, as well as the uh, sort of the creative slash editorial end of things at Fox when it comes to licensing, I know that they're high on this. You know, they've been very supportive of what we wanted to do. They were very excited from the very beginning. And it's because they were excited from the beginning that, that we've had longevity now. You know, we're getting ready. We're heading toward a really big issue 25 event in X-Files season 10 that's going to really set, chart the course for what comes after that. So you know, the fact that we've been able to continue as long as we've been able to continue on X-Files and give rebirth to Millennium, that all comes from the fact that they're pleased that insofar as they're paying attention. I'm as optimistic as you guys are. But for us, it's full steam ahead. And, uh, you know, we've got plans and we're going to keep executing them.
1: Well, issue one of Millennium is fantastic. Having read it, you start with a a quote from something ancient, just like uh, like (laughs) the show. (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of the fun part of the job is trying to find those. And, and, you know, there's some quotes I want to use, like, I, I'd love to use song lyrics, but, uh, but I was told that they don't want to get into any sort of potential copyright mm. issues. So I've <laughs> got to go, I've got to go to more, you know, apocryphal texts and, uh, y- you know, more ancient things, but, um, So it's not going to
1: say, want to grow up to be a debaser, Frank Black. Yeah, right. <laughs>
2: uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't, uh, I, 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 no comment on anything you' you're referring to because <laughs> I have plans so.
1: <laughs> the issue one quote is every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end which is very Sounds apropos cool, right? yeah
3: so, so millenniumistic <laughs>
1: yes. and well actually when I was watching the show one of the things that always kind of baffled me was I was like Jesus Christ these guys are <laughs> some of these quotes are from some some really strange places you know who was finding them was it the authors actually doing the research or were they uh, you know, did, were they having right. good up? How, yeah. how have you gone about finding obscure quotes from ancient tomes?
2: Never underestimate my ability to procrastinate on the internet, man. So, <laughs> um, for me, I you know I have a lot of fun doing that. I don't have a research department behind me, so it's a lot of uh, me having an idea and me going looking for something, or me being exposed to something without looking for it, and then making a note and stuffing it away, and then coming back to it later. You know, I love all of those quotes from the show. I think I think my favorite one is what what episode is it where it opens with a quote involving Mary Todd Lincoln talking to the ghost of she and, and President Lincoln's dead son. And, yeah, and it Christ opens it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that one. It's things like that are just just so great.
3: With the creepy wind sound in the background, it was just perfect for that episode. Mm-hmm.
1: What's neat about what's happening? In the story here is that it does involve Fox Mulder, at least in so far as issue one. Yes. It's a rare situation for Mulder because Frank Black is a guy who he has every reason to believe. Frank might seem a little unhinged these days, but Mulder knows Frank is on the level. He knows his experience. He knows that Mm -hmm. uh, he's confronted paranormal things firsthand, just like Mulder has. And so without Scully there to anchor him, like, how deep are these two going to go?
2: Mulder is definitely the supporting character in in Millennium. It's Frank's book. But the two of them together are fascinating because I think there's a mutual respect Frank is a little older than Mulder. And if Mulder's going to look up to anybody, I think he's going to defer to Frank in his experience and, you know, kind of treat him with some deference. And it's been an experience for me because, you know, Mulder and Scully, they just sort of ping off one another. And Mulder and Frank took a little time. You know, there's some scenes in that first issue that I had to rewrite a couple of times to get it down. But it's working. There's going to be a couple of other uh Surprised X Files guest stars coming up in the next few issues that you guys will see. And uh, I think it's working. There are a lot of things that I would love to get in this first miniseries. There are a lot of things that will be in the second potential miniseries, should we get to do one, should the response be strong enough, should Fox and IDW give me the green light to do it. So you're not going to see everything. Because I think we wouldn't do service to all these great concepts and characters if we just threw everything together in here. But I'd like to think you're going to get some of the things you really would like to see revisiting Millennium. And then you will anticipate and hope, if not salivate, if we're so fortunate that we made you that excited, I think you'll see the possibilities where miniseries two could go and that's my goal you know i've got a pretty good handle on a lot of the core cool concepts involved with this series i think at this point the whole idea of legion the idea of the millennium group and sort of the mythos that's been built out most of that work happening in season two and i see the way the threads can tie together in ways that the show never really had an opportunity to explore all these different ideas that they would span a couple of episodes, then we'd never hear from them again. I'd like to think I see possibilities for what they could be and how they can tie together, and we're definitely doing some of that in this first series, and there's a lot more I would like to do, so I'm hopeful that we will get to do it. We shall see.
1: You do a fantastic job of threading Easter eggs along for everybody Who's, uh, who's in for the ride. Um, <laughs> Thank you. For example, mentioning Monty Props a while back in X-Files season 10. And uh-huh. I don't know if it's been solicited or not, if we should talk about how he appears in this issue of Millennium.
2: <laughs> well, he's in there, right? right. <laughs> I, don't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how deep you should go. For people who don't know, Monty Props is the serial killer mentioned in the X-Files pilot way back in 1993 that Fox Mulder as a young... FBI agent was responsible for helping put away. He had published a monograph on serial killers and the occult that led to this character's capture. No exploration of that concept at all past that point. And I have no idea what Chris's ideas were for that. We never talked about this. It was just one of those things that came up and then they never explored it. So I have a running list of concepts that as I watch the show, sometimes things will come up and I'll be like, huh, that was never. Explored, and you know, one day I'll hope to go back to it. So I did hope at some point we were going to do something with Monty Props. With regards to Millennium, he is sort of an entry point to a bigger thing. You'll see the storyline evolves a bit from where the first issue takes it. I'd like to think with each issue it takes a little bit of a turn that it's not just the serialized first part, second part, third part thing. I'd like to think each issue goes a little bit in a new direction, building on what we did in the previous one. That's about all I, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful with what I reveal <laughs> here, but thank you for mentioning Monty props. I, I, I like when people appreciate that we do stuff like that.
3: James, don't we still have uh, an issue unresolved as far as a killer goes from season two in uh, millennium Mikado?
4: That's true.
2: There are lots <laughs> of concepts I would like to explore. I mean, so many things we never saw with the show. Like how did Frank Black and Peter Watts first get together?
1: Hmm. Good point. Right?
2: Yeah. Right? That'd be I great. Mean, so, We saw Peter Watts' initiation, the way someone is initiated and sort of the circumstances. Knowing what we know about it now that was fleshed out in season two, I would like to get to, you know, what was Frank going through when he was exposed to Millennium? You know, what was Peter Watts' plan? How did he get to Frank? Things like that I would like to potentially explore. And I'm not saying that to say that we're necessarily doing any of those things anytime in the immediate, but there is no shortage of cool little things that we could pick from. So believe me, as long as we can tell these stories, there's no shortage of fodder for us to play with.
4: And they're sort of safe zones, aren't they? Because they're sort of things that if Millennium ever did come back in the other way, it would be unlikely they would tackle on a mainstream platform because they're like 15 years old. People aren't going to remember on the mainstream, but would probably like to indulge in a comic.
1: Yeah, I think that that's fair
2: to say.
4: Let's talk about one of the,
1: the core elements of Millennium, the demons and angels It happens in funny little waves. It'll either be extremely subtle and there'll be implications of a demon or Mm -hmm. something really drastic will happen, like the battle between an angel and a demon in uh, powers and principalities and all that. I
2: love that episode.
1: Yeah. Or something like somehow Satan got behind me, where if you were anywhere on the fence of maybe they're not really demons, like, no, they're demons. They're straight up demons and they have coffee together.
2: Right. Or, or, or Frank on Halloween, you know, seeing the demon across the way, watching yeah. him, or just like little things that make you go, what the fuck is this? But in the context <laughs> of the show, if you're invested, you understand what it means. These sort of portents, these sort of lingering concepts and the whole idea that evil is just on the periphery. It's such a heady thing. It's such a yeah. an ambitious, demanding show. It's not a casual viewing experience by any means.
1: Something that was uh, really gratifying for me in my ongoing rewatch of The X-Files, for those keeping count, I'm uh, towards the end of season seven now. There was a, a sequel to Irresistible, one of the genesis for Millennium's aesthetic of, of serial killers and so on. And there was an implication in the in the original episode. There was this guy who attacked women and they saw him as a demon. And there was sort of, there was a mild implication during the episode that maybe that was just a, a personification That it was a um, visual manifestation of those people's fear for the audience, basically. And then in the sequel, there's much more to imply that, like, this is a demon. And not only that, but in a lot of ways, this character acted as a through line for what was happening in Millennium. He was both a conventional serial killer, the likes of which Frank Black would have tracked down for the Millennium group, and then Mm -hmm. also the very same kinds of demons that he was dealing with in larger situations.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll buy that. A lot of these ideas are things that were gestating, I'm sure, in Chris's head from way back. You can connect that tissue now. <laughs> right. You have the ability to sort of look at the entire slate and do that. This reminds me of the person who asked me, "Didn't didn't Scully have the Millennium sigil tattooed on her ass that time?" And, yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there's lots of that. So. <laughs>
1: It's interesting because at this point, there's really nothing we can do but to look at the series as a full body of work and anything, whether it was intended or not, the interpretation of it becomes the reality of it. It seems especially true of Millennium based on the very divisive factors going on behind the scenes of the show production and the extreme differences between the tone of all the respective seasons. It puts Mm -hmm. it in in an interesting place that makes it kind of prime for what you're doing here, Joe, with interpreting Millennium again, as all the the many groups of people who came in and Mm -hmm. gave their version of the show. Now you two in this, let's say, fourth season of Millennium are now the series head offering your interpretation on all that's come before.
2: Sure. I mean, I have a wealth of stuff that I can choose from and I am and I do see the hooks and the, and the threads that can tie together, at least somewhat. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm still working on this, but right. I'd like to think we're actively trying to blend a lot of the coolest and the best ideas and uh, initiatives that were launched in the first and second season, primarily. Just Frank and serial killers, demons, the Millennium Group in sort of a wide-ranging way with an agenda. You'll see, I mean, the story opens up to encompass all of these things.
1: What else is going on in the world of Joe Harris right now?
2: Well, we just wrapped Great Pacific. We're taking an indefinite hiatus with that sort of a, a soft ending at issue 18. Martine Morazzo, my collaborator on that book, and I have a new Image Comics series coming out later this year. Another sci-fi adventure series with a sort of environmentally apocalyptic through line through it that we're really excited about and you'll be hearing more about soon. I've got two more creator-owned books that you should be hearing about as 2015 winds on as well. So I'm I'm a busy guy.
1: Yeah, staying real busy. That's great. And I hope so. <laughs> great Pacific is a, a fantastic book that if you listeners have not checked it out, we'll link to on this episode's page.
2: It's a sci-fi adventure series about a young guy who is due to inherit one of the largest oil fortunes the world's ever known. It's you know one of the most successful corporations on earth. It's also responsible for all of the horrible things that oil companies are responsible for. Long story short, on the eve of Chaz, our, our main character, on the eve of his 21st birthday, he embezzles a ton of money out of the company, fakes his own death, only to resurface out on the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which for those who don't know, it's this environmental disaster going on out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, midway between the United States and Japan, somewhat north of Hawaii, where all of the plastic debris and garbage that uh, ends up in the ocean sort of gets trapped by a convergence of currents. And at this point, scientists estimate that the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is more than twice the size of Texas. Now, in reality, it is this sort of soupy collection of particulate matter that fish eat and then birds eat the fish and it ends up in the food chain. And it's just a disaster. We have sort of hyper realized it to be this (laughs) contiguous.
6: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: This continent, sort of the eighth continent on Earth of plastic and garbage, sort of a, a cautionary tale that if you don't clean these things up, they are going to get worse. And our character, who fakes his own death and embezzles all this money, eventually resurfaces out on the Great Pacific garbage patch where he proceeds to plant his own flag and declare it his own sovereign nation, which he christens New Texas, sort of a thumb in the eye of his home state. And he seeks to build a society on top of it. From there, it's all about the evils that men do. He's got to contend with all sorts of threats once he gets out there, from mutated marine life, like this giant octopus that comes after him, that the pirates, the U.S. Navy comes after him. He discovers a cache of nuclear warheads at one point. It's a pretty original landscape, and, and yeah. we've gotten to tell some really fun stories on it.
1: It's a lot of fun, and you should totally check it out if you haven't read Great Pacific.
2: We've got the Volume 3 trade paperback. Yeah, I think it comes out on the 28th.
1: Cool. And is that the conclusion of it for now, or is there still one more? For now,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really proud of the final story arc that we did. Big Game Hunters, we bring this really, really nasty villain out to New Texas who uh, pretty much seeks to take everything Chaz has built from him, and he really does a good job of that. It's a pretty brutal fight for survival. Nobody uh, escapes unchanged.
1: Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being here. The pleasure is mine. (laughs) Millennium Issue 1 is at comic stores now, and available via all major digital retailers. If you want to catch Joe at a convention this year, he'll be coming to MegaCon, AwesomeCon, Rose City Comic Con, and San Diego Comic Con to name a few. Follow him on Twitter for the latest. We're going to cut to a track, and right now we've got something very special. The Proto Men have released a new album. No, it's not their long-awaited Act 3. It's the almost equally long-awaited covers album, The Cover-Up. It just debuted this past weekend at MAGFest, and the album is now for sale on vinyl and cassette, both of which come with digital downloads. The record features some incredible covers, and what we're going to play right now is a song very befitting to the feel of Millennium and one of the Protoman's best-known covers. It's the Mike and the Mechanics classic, Silent Running, On Dangerous Ground.
7: Take the children and yourself And hide out in the cellar but now the fighting will be close at hand Don't believe the church and state And everything they tell you Believe in me I'm with the high command Can you hear me? Can you hear me running? Can you hear me running? Can you hear my calling you? Can you hear me
1: So guys, as I mentioned earlier, your Back to Frank Black campaign is staggering in its scope. I recall a couple things similar. For example, the long-running Twin Peaks zine wrapped in plastic, or in video games, Starman.net and Fangamer's repeated attempts to uh, get Earthbound or its follow-up game Mother 3 brought to the United States. Those are the only things I can think of similar in scope to what you've done with Back to Frank Black and uh, bringing together all these different creatives from the show To put together a book, a massive book, there's Back to Frank Black, the website, and there's Back to Frank Black, the book. I finished the series, I went to Amazon, I ordered the book. After it was done, I knew that's what I needed to do. As a Watcher of Millennium, you're never going to get closer to any kind of closure, except for maybe this new comic book series, than being able to get all this insight on the show. Well, that
4: was the idea behind it. Well, part of the idea. If nothing did come from the campaign and that has to be acknowledged for any campaign. There was a sort of epitaph, some sort of, of our work, something that sort of put it all together and sort of said, this is what we've been doing for the last few years. And I think the study of a show is as interesting and as valid as new material. And some fans don't want a new millennium, which I can sort of understand it in a weird way, because Firefly, the Serenity, did a new comic book which followed the uh, film. Mm-hmm. And I rather liked the end of the film. I thought it was a very nice place to close because it had to be closed because there was going to be no more. And I thought, yeah, that sort of answered the series. It gave us a nice big send-off and you have a, a new future for these guys. And of course, I bought the Firefly comic and I've enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. But there was part of me which sort of said, well, you know, that was a good place to end it. I mean, I suppose with Millennium, you can not really a that. good place. <laughs> yeah, to, to a degree. But though, you know, Millennium with the X-Files episode, while it wasn't a very good episode, it did give you some closure. And it goes back to the argument that you've opened up Frank Black's life again, you open him up to turmoil, because that's what drama is. While if he's walking off into the sunset with his daughter, he has a happy ending. So, you know, I can understand why some people don't want it to be open on that sort of grounds. but. I think if you're into creative um, stories, I think you can't deny it's a wonderful thing. If you don't want to read it, you don't have to. But isn't there, as we just said, a fascination in seeing how a professional writer takes Millennium into the 21st century? Isn't that what Millennium was about? In a sense, perhaps you have to read the comic because Millennium was the question. And what Joe's offering here is some answers to that question of where did the Millennium take Millennium? That's a very valid perspective. We try.
3: (laughs) The interesting thing is, is when we started this campaign, James and I would have a real meeting near the end of every year. And we would try to decide how we would top the previous year. One year was like, we get Chris Carter for an interview. Next year was like, (sighs) we'll do this. We'll do that. So we were coming up for another year of the campaign and we were trying to decide what we wanted to do. And it's interesting now that a comic book is coming out because initially we were going to do a comic.
4: (laughs) Yeah, there was talk of that.
3: We were talking about a comic. We had lined up some artists that were interested in doing it. I think James and myself and a couple other guys were going to be involved in writing this comic. But we started floating that idea around.
4: I wasn't over keen on it in the end. I mean, I'd done something similar when I was at university for Batman. I got involved in a Batman animated series comic that was called Dark Knight Adventures. And... That was horrendously popular, to be honest, at the time of the internet, sort of of 2002. It did very well, and I was learning to draw, and I got to write it as well. And I did hundreds. It was still out there. But ultimately, you have that issue that it never feels quite as genuine. And as writers or as artists, you will always have that feeling that you're stepping over someone else's material. I wasn't sure whether we really wanted to do that. And there's another factor that people will get behind a campaign or, or things to do with bringing a show back, fans are never comfortable with fans handling material, even interviews and stuff we do, there were fans who are against it. As soon as you start actually saying, we're now officially doing a comic book fan homage to Millennium, this is where we think it will go. You can sort of alienate some of your potential campaigners because they'll go, well, obviously you're riding your own little glory train. I'm not interested. Or, you know, <laughs> why do you think you've got the right to do that? There's loads of little complexities which we discussed and considered.
3: And luckily at the same time, we had two guys join us, Adam Chamberlain and Brian A. Dixon, who run um, Fourth Horseman Press. We all sat down and started talking about it. And James just realized we have this treasure trove of information on our website. Why don't we just put it in a book?
4: Yeah, why don't we just tell these two guys to spend a year yeah. of their lives <laughs> putting into a book? And they did. <laughs> and Brian is actually mentioned in the episode the Fourth Horseman. Yeah, yes. I I read the chapter of the book
1: about the Back to Frank Black project. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Brian getting name dropped in an episode of Millennium because he ran I guess the earliest or biggest yeah, earliest the, Millennium fan site. The Millennial yes. Abyss, Yeah. What I didn't have time to look into was where exactly that name drop was and in what context cuz that's that's so cool. Like especially like that sort of thing happens a fair amount nowadays, but back then, yeah. man, that must have been just kind of unprecedented.
4: Huge. Yeah. Yeah, he's um the leader of the trust in Time Is Now. The
1: head of an opposing force of the Millennium Group, that's not a yeah. name of any insignificance. It's not like random sex offender,
4: you know? Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. I know that he said at the time that was just sort of mind-blowing for him. He's a very smart man. I, our Brian Dixon, I, I don't know about the leader of the trust. I'm sure he was quite bright, but our Brian. <laughs> and then Adam Chamberlain, who's English like myself, unfortunately. He's a very, very smart and articulate man as well. So to get those two on board to put all this into a book form. Yeah, was, it was, uh, and
3: yeah. Lance was behind us hundred percent.
4: It felt more in tone with Millennium yeah. because we always said that Millennium fans were intelligent people. They were smart. They were thoughtful. And this in no way sort of knocks the new comic coming out. But as fans, it seemed that a book reflected the fans more than if the fans were doing a comic. So that was another good reason for the book because it reflected the sort of interest and the depth that fans could do. And I think a comic, you would need someone like Joe Harris and the resources available to do Millennium Justice that we obviously couldn't. It's fascinating to see how fans can embrace fandom. It is a fascinating mode of expression, which is obviously growing massively in the last 10 years. Now you get fans who run for shows that they were fans of. For me, as an English person, Doctor Who is a big example where most of the people involved in Doctor Who now were fans of it and were writing fan fiction in the 1980s. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you know, they now run that show. Yeah. And that sort of thing is going to happen more and more and more. So it's a very weird sphere, the fan sphere. It can be very positive. And as we found, it can be very negative.
3: We've had our issues here and there, but to James's credit, you know, it's been a pretty smooth ride.
4: If you wanted to do this properly, you had to do it with the right cordiality if you wanted the industry to actually respect, respect. you. Yeah. And there is a lot of um, the cultural capital in fandom is very low still, especially from the industry. And even as a book, there was a talk of certain members of the industry sort of sneering at the idea of what we were doing, you know. There's a lot of competition, there's a lot of dislike of independent stuff and of, of fans, lots of uncertainty. And part of that is because, you know, fandom is so variable, isn't it? You can get yeah. Star Trek Continues, which is most of, um, you know pinnacle of fan achievement. And then you can get something which is pretty drossy and egotistical and doesn't work. So you can get such levels of quality. The industry is very sceptical of what you're going to do. So you've got to approach it professionally. And that's how we did it. And it was going to be not about internet petitions It was going to be about writing letters and showing a presence and trying to show a visibility to Millennium to allow those who created it at a time when they wanted to, to be able to pursue it with a certain amount of visibility to say, look, there's people out there who want it. We always knew from the beginning we were not like Firefly, we were not like Star Trek, not like the X-Files. We'd have this massive mainstream support. We could only really be there to platform the fact that there's a market and a certain demographic market maybe from the sort of fans that we would represent. And that we were there open to the idea to support. And that's why supporting this comic is so important. Because it is a niche. There's no doubt about Millennium is a niche. And if you want the Millennium comic to survive, if you want the Millennium comic to open the doors to anything else, then you've got to put your money where your mouth is and support it. Which is what we're here to say, using you um, (laughs) as trampling over your podcast to send a message. You were invited here. I I brought you here for this. Oh well, that's very kind of you to say it. I I kinda like pretending I'm a sort of like a a rough rogue, which clearly I'm not. None of the (laughs) rough. No, I might damage my knuckles and I might drop my sherry. So you know (laughs) I'm not gonna do any of that. (laughs) That's really the core of it. If you like what Joe has said on this podcast, if you like what we've been talking about and you're not sure, give it a go. It's intelligent science fiction, really. Science fiction thriller, and that sort of project requires support. You can't just take it for granted.
1: With the book, it's great for many, many reasons as a product of the fan community and as insight to, into a television show, but also it's not for profit. All proceeds go to Lance Henderson's uh, registered charity, Children of the Night.
3: Yes, 100%. We don't make a dime on this book. Lance really likes to work with charities that deal with children. And when we proposed the idea of the book, we suggested that all the money go to charity. And we spoke to Lance about it, and he asked if we would use Children of the Night. So, Every dime we make on this book goes to them. And the great thing about it is that everyone that's involved with the book donated their time for free. And a lot of people worked hard on this book.
1: (laughs) In Chris Carter news, when we talked to him in late 2013, he had just wrapped production on The After, the pilot he did for Amazon. And as soon as it debuted, it was greenlit a month later. But uh, very recently, it was announced that uh, the greenlight was withdrawn. After a year of pre-production, no episodes filmed.
3: The guy, for some reason, cannot buy a break right now. (laughs) I mean, you have the after, then there was this project that he had on the books for a long while called uh, Fence Walker. And then there was a series that he wanted to do with, uh, he wanted to have Gillian Anderson as a lead called Unique that didn't come through. And I think right now there's a project with, I think it's AMC.
1: Yeah, and there hasn't been anything said about it for about a year now. It's a, yeah. a thriller based on Ann Jacobson's nonfiction book, Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base.
3: Yeah, that's it. Hopefully he can find something that uh, will get him back in the game again. Because you got to look at the people that work with him. Frank Spotnitz, Howard Gordon, what's the guy that created Breaking Bad? Vince Gilligan. Yeah. All these folks are having some fantastic success with their shows. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Amazon pilot for him, The Man in the High Castle, Frank Spotnitz's new pilot?
1: No, I've been meaning to check that out.
3: Oh, it's fantastic, man. It's fantastic. You have to check it out.
1: We'll link to where you can check out the pilot for the after and also The Man in the High Castle on this episode's page.
3: Hopefully Chris will get something on the ground and get something off because uh, he's just too talented to not have something on television or somewhere.
4: Mm, he should look at Millennium. <laughs> I you know I'm quite serious when we talked about obviously the X-Files rumors and there's no secret in this that they're all, all the components of the X-Files are horrendously busy. They are all horrendously successful people, which is wonderful. You know, Frank, Chris, David, Gillian, all massively busy. It'll be very hard, I imagine, to get that to cohere into something. Millennium, you know, if he was looking at, you know, something else to sort of try and revive and and try something closer to home. Millennium would probably be the easier of the two, even though obviously right. it wouldn't have the uh, massive public media support. But I'd imagine that'd be a more doable thing to put together than uh, X Files because they just, you know, it, it just gave them all such big careers, yeah. uh, busy, productive careers. Fox just has to get that show streaming as soon as people get eyes on the show again. I think a Millennium
1: revival of people taking interest in the show is, is as easy as that show getting on Netflix. Anyway, pretty soon we're gonna put up a spoiler wall and talk about all of Millennium freely. But before you go, you should definitely follow the links on this episode's page to where you can buy Millennium on DVD. It's usually on sale on Amazon. You can get it for just about 40 bucks all three seasons. It's worth it. Obviously, we're devoting a whole episode to it, so there's some
4: merit there. And you've listened this far, so you must be intrigued. Well, if you you stayed on this long, then I am impressed, and you clearly deserve a reward, and that reward will be you going out and buying a copy of Millennium for yourself. and hopefully soon you'll have the
1: ability to stream it. That's something that needs to happen. X-Files has had a resurgence via the streaming services. People who didn't get the chance to watch it when they were younger or wanted to revisit it, it's been top of the stream list, so Millennium is a uh, very obvious follow-up, and uh, my fingers are crossed for it being on a streaming service someday soon.
3: Yeah, we have our fingers crossed as well. I think with the comic coming out, it's going to put a lot of buzz on Millennium. I think Netflix is going to take a look at it And uh, they should, because some of the stuff they have on our needs to go. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, there's a project that's being worked on right now that's going to come out this year. We're not involved with it, but it's Millennium related. That's all I can say. And then the final thing I want to say about as far as we go, like I said, we try to top each other every year. And- if it comes through, it's going to be the biggest thing we've ever done. So we'll just put it like that.
4: All right. We're kind of oh, lucky yeah. this year. This year we can sit back and let Joe do all the work. You know? <laughs> 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 That's the big millennium thing for this year. You've had your book. Now you've got your comic. And it's nice for the campaign because, you know, we always talked about the campaign was always about, as the banner said, you know, back to Frank Black. It's about bringing Frank back. And while this isn't television as everyone hoped or movie as everyone expected, you know, I would personally think it's great to see that the industry has done something in that regard. And he is back. We'd like to see him back with Lance because Lance is so passionate about the character. That's the only frustration is that he loves that character so much.
3: Another great thing about this Millennium comic coming out, that there are just as many X-Files fans excited about this, which is going to help us in the long run.
4: Mm-hmm. I think
3: there's a lot of X-Files fans who love Millennium as well. So we can bridge that gap with that younger audience over there that's going to come over to the Millennium thing, even just for curiosity's sake. Oh, my God, Moulders involved with this Millennium comic. What's Millennium about? And mm-hmm. that'll bring them to say, hey, borrow the DVDs from a friend or buy our book. Back to FrankBlack.com, by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But hopefully I'll bring Millennium to a whole new audience. And yeah, Yeah. we're working on getting Netflix to stream this bad boy, man.
1: Before we head off to Spoilerville, USA, if you are a television enthusiast and enjoy these discussions about where these series could go and how the future could be developed, myself and Mike Rothman of Consequences Sound, who was my co-host on the X-Files episode in 2013, we put together our pitch for... A Miami Vice relaunch, not a reboot, but a relaunch featuring a new cast of characters that is totally fresh but builds on the previously established notions of the original series. We're huge Miami Vice fans, and uh, we'll link to where you can read that on this episode's page. All the stuff we talked about, back to FrankBlack.com, of course, Back to Frank Black, the book, Millennium on DVD. We'll link to where you can pick up all that on this episode's page, and if you do, click through and add it to your cart from our links on Nerdy Show then uh, you will in turn be helping support the Nerdy Show Network, which is much appreciated because we are a listener-supported network. If you like what you hear and you'd like to support in a bigger way, then we're on Patreon. You can join up, get all kinds of cool outtakes and stuff, including some outtakes from our X-Files episode, actually. A couple extra moments with Joe Harris and Chris Carter. Just head to patreon.com slash nerdy show. In fact, we got a few shout-outs to give out. Some brand new January backers, including Michael Bond, Shannon Andrioli. Nil, and Angus Young Zapita. We also have a special shout-out from Chief of Stuff, who says, Godzilla will always be king of the monsters. And Jeff Rotull wrote in to let us know that he used Nerdy Show support link to buy some Steven Universe on Amazon. A fantastic show, and a very wise move. So, this would be then the point at which, if you want to avoid any kind of spoilers, just dip off. We're just going to chat for a little bit longer. Have some fun, unrestrained dialogue about uh, favorite episodes and so on. If you want to stick around, please do. If not, we'll see you next time. I'm sure you must have gone over this at some point within your various shows and all, but, uh, but you guys' favorite episodes of the show. Oh. And, I, and I imagine that that's a very loaded question. I had trouble coming up with any kind of a list myself.
3: For me, you have to start with the pilot, because if the pilot doesn't work for you, then you're really not going to be interested in the rest of the series, most likely. So. Right. Dead Letters in season one, Thin White Line, Weeds, the Frank Spotnitz episode is fantastic. Season two, I like Luminary, the Mikado, the Pest House is a favorite of mine. Um, and then James knows, and everyone who knows on these podcasts, season three is my favorite season out of all of the seasons. Really? Yeah, and Dude, those are hell. my favorite episodes to come from in season three.
4: Despite the fact they have named every other episode in the last two series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ways yeah, to leave me a- with an empty list.
3: Yeah, season three is is my favorite. That's when Clay Scott comes in, joins the show, and uh, I really liked her character a lot.
1: Emma Hollis was great, and I I really, man, my fingers are crossed that we're going to see her in the comic book.
3: We wanted to get Clay on the podcast because, obviously, I'm a big fan of hers, and Claire was really wary of coming on or doing an interview with us because she had dealt with so much negativity for her work on the show. People yeah. were upset that she became the leading female character on the show when Catherine was killed off.
4: It's worth pointing out. I mean, we're talking about like 1998 here, 1999, yeah. you know, where you're using user net groups and news groups, you know, people sort of say that there's, you know, the whole big thing about trolling and stuff now, but it was just as nasty back then. You know, I mean, she spent, you know, a series on that show, devoted to it, you know, and filming is not an easy, you know, it's not an easy life. That's a hard, strenuous job. And then to come out of it and and see what people are sort of saying about you, it's a hard thing to get past. And it's a shame that all that intense work was marred by a few people.
3: Yeah. So she pretty much stayed away from Millennium. So James had tried to reach out to her. He couldn't get hold of her. So I finally got a hold of her people and I sent her a message and she said that she might be interested in doing a written interview. So I wrote this long letter, man, and uh, she eventually said yes. She came on the podcast and you know we had a great time and, and it, it yeah. reinvigorated her love for the show and her work and she was happy to see that people loved what she did. And she's been a huge supporter of ours ever since.
4: That's so
1: phenomenal. That's great.
3: I think that's been one of our favorite podcasts, hasn't it, James?
4: Yeah, because it has that long-lasting factor that she was uncomfortable with fandom and it sort of gave her a new ability to experience a positive fandom. Yeah. So that is, again, is one of those moments which I think was memorable for the campaign.
3: And we actually I mean, got it's... her back in touch with Lance for the first time since Yeah,
7: absolutely,
1: yeah. <laughs> season three is interesting because it was, um, for my take, it's quite difficult because I don't feel that it really knew what it was doing until episode 11. And from that point on, it hits really hard. But I can only imagine, and all the DVD features really speak to this, is that the, uh, the crew had a really hard time finding their footing, trying to recover yeah. from how different season two was.
3: Yeah. Morgan and Wong, who uh, took over the reins in season two, didn't think they were coming back for a third season, which is why you had that two-part story at the end and that Marburg virus that killed like, what, 80% of the country or whatever. And when they found out that they were coming back, they kind of had to scramble to, uh, you know, get Millennium back on track. But the interesting thing is Glenn Morgan actually told us that uh, if him and Wong had come back for the third season, that they had an out.
4: (laughs) He was very keen to put forward as well that some people alluded that it was a sort of like a spiteful ending, so it couldn't have a third season. But from what he was saying is that it was feeling like there was a potential of a, of a finish there. So that's what they aimed to have. But, as Troy says, an out if it went to three. But they obviously weren't involved in three.
1: I read in you guys' book that they said, well, yeah, we had an out, but no one asked us. They were just angry and they moved on.
3: <laughs> yeah, no one asked him and, and he wouldn't tell us, so... <laughs> <laughs>
1: That was we tried my next to get question. it out of him,
3: man. <laughs> we tried to get it out of him, but he wouldn't tell us, man. <laughs> I think one thing that's great about the podcast and the campaign is that Morgan and Wong kind of had a sour taste when they left Millennium after season two. And if you have the box set, you see that they aren't involved in the season two commentaries at all on the DVD. But James and I were able to get them on our podcast to talk about Millennium. So I think that's one of the biggest things we've done as far as our podcast is concerned is getting those two guys to come on the show and talk about Millennium and their time on the show.
1: I agree. After I finished the series, I thought, my God, all the commentary is bookended by their associates working with Millennium, very diplomatically talking about how they came in and ruined everything as far as Mm -hmm. they were concerned. And then they weren't there. And I was like, oh, my God, I want this information because personally, season two is my favorite. I absolutely love what they did. And I totally understand why the rest of the crew was uncomfortable with these guys coming in, not from the outside, but they may as well have given how drastic everything was and shifting so much. But the style, the music, the way they wove the story beats and led the viewer along, it created a uh, real sense of tension across all the episodes of when was a certain alluded to plot thread going to hit a tipping point and it would just burst and something terrible would happen.
4: I think the other nice thing was it was, I mean, as you say, some of the cast weren't sure at the time, and I'm pretty sure Lance has said on our shows that he wasn't sure at the time, but the nice thing again is with retrospect, he's had the opportunity to go back and look at the stuff and find an appreciation for it where the circumstances of the time, busy schedules, the pressure of the role. From what he sort of said, he didn't feel that he was able to see the second season for what it was because the environment's very different when you're inside something to when you're outside it. So I think he liked as well having to look back at it and then be able to say how I actually I quite like a lot of what's going on here, which I perhaps couldn't see when I was inside it. I think it's just nice to have that sort of commentary, really, because people tend to sort of say, well, Lance Henriksen didn't like it. And that means that Lance Henriksen would never like it ever because they might have read something which said he didn't like an episode. When we deal with the industry, we tend to deal with people involved in it in very one-word characterizations. You know, you can't change your mind. What you said at the time is definitive. It's canonical. You can't go back on it. And it's nice with this sort of campaign to be able to talk to these people and see their reflections, see how they've changed, see the difference between, say, Glenn Morgan and James Wong. Both of them love Space Above and Beyond, which they both worked on. You talk to Glenn Morgan, you can see how losing Space Above and Beyond hurt him. Very, very deeply. While James Wong is a little more, he, I don't know about you, Troy, but he felt a little more on top of it. Yeah. It he, he didn't sort of touch him, but for Glenn, it was really hard to talk about.
3: When they started season three, they had a particular showrunner who was eventually let go early on. Really? Who didn't work out. Yeah. I didn't know there that. Showrunner. So Chip Johannesson and Ken Horton took over. And it wasn't until about, I think, it was The Sound of Snow James, where they kind of started talking about what happened with the Marburg virus?
1: Yeah, yeah, Sound, from, Sound of Snow is where Frank dealt with that directly. That yeah. was a really good episode. And from there
3: on, story. it really caught its footing, and I, I think some of the best episodes of the season, or the series, yeah. for me.
4: Seriously, is a very interesting one. And In a way, I kind of like what they did with Sound of Snow. I thought it was quite a smart move. I've always said this, is that I remember when 9-11 occurred. There was talk on the news. The news got quite hysterical over it. And I don't mean that in a rude way because there was a reason to be upset about it. But I meant so far as there was talk of remote-controlled planes and maybe I think even one newscaster mentioned something about attacks on the eastern coast being, you know, it got ridiculous and over the top. And in a weird way, the way season three dealt with the Marlboro virus was almost like a, a reflection of that before it happened in the sense that it sort of suggests that the the hysteria at the end of Series 2 was hysteria. And in fact, the cases were quite localized, but everyone panicked. And that is actually quite true to to how people work. So in a sense, while it's often criticized Series 3 for doing that choice, in a sense, it does actually have reflections with how real-life media does work.
1: Exactly. Other season three episodes like Antipass and Saturn Dreaming of Mercury all really did mm-hmm. such a good job of, of building on all the, the paranormal elements that were stewing underneath the surface of the show and the series ending with
4: Frank and Jordan very much on the run. Yeah, there is, and we've spoken to Frank about this, and Frank denies that there being any truth to this. It's just logic that you can see, which isn't meant to be there. But for Frank to be in the Millennium episode of X-Files, he's in a position where... He is able to openly contest for Jordan publicly in the civil courts. He's also in the institution as well, which to me suggests that the Millennium Group has broken up, has fragmented to a point where they're no longer on the run. Because if he was still on the run, there's no way he could be sort of having to fight in the courts for Jordan, over Jordan's grandparents. Yeah. So you start to see things that you can sort of almost suggest to happen. You can almost suggest as well the fact that the Millennium Group member directly recognises Frank, and into a point where he almost suggests that Frank is one of them. So do you, does that suggest that Frank actually got inside the Millennium Group between the but, end of the series? And did he create a fragmentation? Did it break down? The other argument is, is that in season three, again, this is all found speculation, the fragmentation of the Millennium Group through Owls and Roosters in season two, you have, what's the name of the character in season three, Troy? The uh, one who ends up being slightly legion
3: May- yeah,
4: I know uh, he, is he like part of the sort of infiltration of the higher evil into the Millennium Group because the Millennium Group has lost its way, it's lost its purity through its own internal wars? And is he part of what sort of fragments Millennium Group? So in a weird way, X-Files Millennium episode isn't very good because as Frank has always said, the key was to make it an X-Files episode. You couldn't right. just make it Millennium episode. You could argue it does answer things about Millennium that gives it an epilogue. If you look for them.
3: And you also start to remember that what happened with Emma Hollis, she was yeah. part of the millennium group at the end of the series. Did she infiltrate? Did she help Frank? Did she not help Frank? That's a question that was unanswered.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are sort of things that, you know, if Joe is ever interested he could explore in ways that if you ever brought it back as a TV show, as I said, would never be explored. Yeah. Because it would be suicidal, wouldn't it? You yeah. know, for, <laughs> for a show aimed at trying to capture millions, to sort of needling plot points that a few thousand people might remember. It's madness. So, you know, that's the other benefit of things like the comic. You know, if people want to know what happened to Peter Watts or Emma Hollis. The comic will get you that. If Millennium came back as a show, I can always guarantee you that the nuances of the Millennium TV show will not be addressed because you just can't after a decade. The Millennium group might still be around. It may revolve around the Millennium group in some ways, but it can't keep going back. It'd have to go forward. So a comic allows you to do this. So again, if you're thinking about whether to buy the Millennium comic or not and you liked Millennium, those little things you'll probably find answered in the comic than you would in a show revival.
1: There's no chance of this degree of closure, not a chance in hell. You're very right about that. No, absolutely.
4: Absolutely. That's the fascination about revivals or continuations is how they make you reflect on the previous chapters. If it tells us that Emma helped, as Troy said, or if it tells us that Peter Watts is alive, how does that change your reflection on the previous seasons? But we do that season by season, don't we? Season two changes how we reflect on season one. Season one, you now watch, and you're thinking, well, we, we're seeing the outer facade of the Millennium Group, but now we know there's a far deeper element to it that Frank's not seeing yet because he's not trusted enough to get close enough. But that's not there in the first season. You bring that yourself once you've watched season two. There's sort of <laughs> yeah. reflexivity to it that you, you take in it's, it's fascinating.
1: Yeah. James, Troy, thank you guys so much for joining me on this. This has been a great time. I've been really needing to, uh, to nerd out with somebody about Millennium for a while now. <laughs> It's a small group. we got to stick together, you know?
3: <laughs> well, yeah, thanks for having us on, man. We appreciate it. And actually, we, you know, I have been corresponding for a while trying to get something like this together, but I'm glad it finally happened, man.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to be back on drinking the toilet cleaner later, so I won't remember any of this. It <laughs> so will be totally new when I see it.
3: <laughs> 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 yeah, seriously, thank you, man, for uh, having us on. And uh, thank you for supporting Millennium and the comic and our book. And uh, we, we really appreciate it.
1: It's been my pleasure. It's been a blast. taking us out. We've got something brand new from the premier pirate rap act, The Scurvy Crew. Now, you might normally know them as Captain Dan and The Scurvy Crew, but it turns out that Captain Dan is going to need a bit of cajoling to return back to the studio and put his feathered hat in the ring of pirate rap once again. So, one of his mates, Sea Dog, has started a Patreon to crowdfund more pirate rap and show Captain Dan it's really time for them to hit the seven seas again. We'll link to that Patreon on this episode's page. And now, you get to hear the first new rap from that project. It's a track called All Hands on Deck. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, I'm Cap. Bye, I'm Troy.
4: Bye, I'm probably James.
1: This is who we are.
0: And a bottle of rum, for yay mates. we're back, baby! Sinister. Got bars. Pirate style. Bars. I kick back a clap of thunder, Unstoppable comical volatile nautical a nominal wound the tropical seas with no blunder. Blunder. It's what I'll get by sword or by bet by threat or by, by death. death by blunder or net. I'll rob a string quartet and make them so upset. Sea oh, dog. Back in action. Pirate hat. High patch. The best there is in fashion. Right. Cool as the arctic. Fire like a dragon, taking all the ships down with absolutely no compassion. I'll shoot you for your money. I don't need to cheat ya. Got so many black marks, you think I'm a cheater? All hands on deck. That's right, that's right. All hands on deck. Your skills unsurpassed, get you higher than the missing mass. Words have me like a bell Back on the scene at last. All hands on deck. Right,
4: All hands on deck. Sinister K.
0: Yeah she blows, send a star spit crazy flows. Yes. I bet your whole navy AV knows. knows. I'm a loose cannon when I'm seasick. Yes. Pirate hat, leather vest, two eye patches on a search for the treasure chest. Yes. The squash buckler, he plays his own part. My sword sharp, I got it locked like Davy Jones' heart. Yeah, I peace. won't stop once I start. So behold the duel, my unleashed, ready to feast with two, two blue balloons. Too many sea creatures, I fought for rank. Overboard, or under pressure, had to walk the plank. See, there. I made. the Cracking my bitch in front of his mermaids and dumped his ass in the smallest tank. I'm it's such a dastardly dude. And see, I'm never passive, I'm rude. No. I get high and eat all of the parrot food. Mock me again, I dare you to overcross. Drinking rum during a duel, drunk when they're sober, lost. I'll shoot you for your money. I don't need to cheat you. Got so many black marks, you think I'm a cheater. All hands on deck. All hands on deck. Skills unsurpassed. Get you higher than the mizzen mast. Words heavy like a ballast back on the scene at last. All hands on deck, all hands on deck,
4: all hands on
0: deck. You got guns, you say My cutlass hero put them on display All over the gangway The game's been mine since yesterday I fly smooth like a manta ray Every day, lyrics so cray Shock your heart like a moray Eel with guns and rope and sharpened steel Enemy ranks thinned While I'm three sheets to the wind Talk smack I'll take this scimitar here And give your beard a trim Hear me har, har, har As your your lights lights dim Lights dim Lights dim are now going deep below. Yay, Davy Jones, Locker. And at this point, there is no turning back for you.
6: Thank you for listening to Nerdy Show. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes or like us and follow us on SoundCloud. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show network alive by telling a friend or funding the Nerdy Show via Patreon. Any size contribution gets you exclusive outtakes, episodes, and images from across the network. And there's even more perks available. Just head to patreon.com slash nerdy show. To find out how you or your company can underwrite this or other Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com slash sponsorships. You can subscribe to Nerdy (laughs) Show via iTunes and SoundCloud. Leave a comment, like, share, and follow Nerdy Show on all of your favorite social networks like Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. We're everywhere. For more podcasts, articles, community forums, and other awesomeness, visit nerdyshow.com. We're glad to be your home for authentic nerdy entertainment.